Um, never is there a time uh, in our calendar year that we are more confronted with the strange paradox of a season that's meant to remind us of the beauty of the incarnation that is God's entrance into his own creation, the creator become creature, um, God become man for us uh, and with us and in us, uh, contrasted with the world's also obsession with this particular time of year and the, the pressures financially to have gifts for everybody um, under the tree, the, the pressures to uh, not disappoint your children, the unbearable pressures to spend time with family, which is essentially defined as people who you didn't get to pick. <laughs> uh, and, and then there's also the mark of, for many of us, is, as we get older, is Christmas becomes one of those pointers that reminds us of what we've lost, people that we've loved, people that are no longer with us. Um, and so I think Christmas time is a very complicated time of year. Um, it's something that I love and look forward to every year. And then it also comes with that whole mixed bag um, that I just spoke of. And, and so today, um, my prayer, and it's a cool thing when Christmas Eve falls on a Sunday, um, is to hopefully redirect our attention back uh, to the one um, who has come to identify himself with us now and forever. Uh, and I want to talk with you today about Jesus as Emmanuel. Um, and I've entitled this not just the name, which means God with us, but I want to speak to kind of three realities of what Emmanuel carries within it, which is it is God like us, God for us, and God with us. And so I want to just read to you from Matthew chapter 1, uh, verses 18 um, through 25. And you can get that slide. Yeah, it's, it's up behind me if you don't have your Bible. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, that is intimately, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take you, Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took to him his wife and did not know her, that is, have intimacy with her, till she had brought forth the first, her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Well, I want to begin with this idea of the supreme celebration of Christmas is a theological word that we utilize as Christians, but sometimes don't take the time to truly think about its implications. Uh, and that word is incarnation. It is 
the, the very essence of the phrase in John chapter 1 when it says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Um, this is God's decisive act uh, in human history uh, to identify Himself with humanity in a new way um, that continues to this day and will continue forever. This is something that is so central to our great creeds, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed specifically um, focuses in on this idea that God became a man for us. That He essentially lived the perfect life as a man for us. That He died as a man for us. And that He will live forever as a man in the center of that new heaven, new earth for us. God's identification with us, for Him to be for us, He also must be somewhat like us. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, um, this was a, a very important concept uh, that actually broke through my 27-year-old drug-induced brain and told me that Christianity was the path that I was going to move down and not some other world religion. Um, because all of my exploration of the great world religions, and, and there's a million little cults and weird religious sects, but when we think about the, what the world's population, uh, the great world religions of Buddhism and, and Hinduism and on the, in the East, and you think about Islam and you think about Judaism and you think about Christianity, Christianity is the only world religion in which its founder is also its content. So this is an incredibly important thing for us to understand. Lots of people have claimed to be God throughout human history, uh, but they are almost immediately discarded as quacks. Buddha never claimed to be God. Muhammad never claimed to be God. Moses never claimed to be God. But Jesus claim something unique and that was his complete identification with the father in such a way that he said if you have seen me you have seen God now that's a profound statement and often when we think about Jesus in terms of him being God we immediately forget his humanity and so we think that when Jesus walked on this earth that what people were seeing and the reason they hated him so much is because they were seeing God in the flesh but that's not actually what they were, what they were hating about him, um, because no man has seen God at any time and lived. No, what they saw was man as God intended man to be. Jesus completely identified with our humanity. He surrendered in some mysterious way his glory without ever diminishing his deity. But what people saw was God functioning in the flesh. They saw humanity as God intended humanity to be. Now this is a profound thing for us because that tells us something incredible about, about God. That is, there is no God behind the back of Jesus. Whatever Jesus is like, that is what we build our faith upon. This is what God is like. Um, but whatever Jesus is like, we also build our faith upon this. This is what man should be like. So this profound mystery of incarnation is, is the thing that drew me actually to my knees 
uh, when I was 27 years old was because I could never put my faith in a God that did not understand my own brokenness. I could never trust in a God that didn't understand the complicated realities of my own broken childhood and my own, my own failed attempts to, to make my life matter um, up until that point in which I met Christ. And what I found was that I mattered to Him not because I was special, but because it was His nature to care. It was His nature to care about me in spite of all of the incredible challenges that I was confronted with. That He loved me not because I was particularly lovable, although I do think I have some lovable qualities, uh, but even those lovable qualities are tainted by a little thing we call sin. Um, and so, as I always say, everything is mixture. No, God loved me because this is what grace is. This is why Bart was correct when he says, grace is Emmanuel. God with us. God like us. God for us. And that was, that was my surrendering point was, I don't just want to know that Jesus understands what it means to be human. He has to understand something on an even deeper level. And that is he has to understand the complications and the challenges of what it means to suffer as a human being. I can't relate to a God that doesn't understand if half of my temperament or more is marked by this thing called sin. How does the God who is without sin understand us at all then? Because we all partake in something that is not a part of his essential nature. So how can God understand us? And this is where the incarnation becomes the great mystery. It's not just that God identifies with our humanity, but He identifies with us in our lowest point in our sin. And that's a profound fact. Look what it says in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 to 18. It says, Therefore, in all things, He had to be made like His brother, brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. I think an even deeper passage is the mysterious passage in 2 Corinthians that is quoted from this pulpit often, and that is, he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, the sinless Son of God absorbed into Himself not just the human condition, but all that that entails, which is the brokenness of the human condition without ever collapsing um, to its pressures. So He accepted our brokenness into Himself without ever acting upon that brokenness. This is why He is man as God intended humanity to be. He lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. And this is the great reality by which he now becomes, it becomes possible for him to be the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. That is that he becomes the perfect sacrifice without blemish. He can carry the sin. He can handle the weight of it. He understands it in, in its absolute depth. And he is able to take it further than any of us because he took it to hell for us. Because that's what I believe Jesus tasted on the cross is what hell ultimately is. The eradication of relationship. The separation of relational knowledge that I am loved by God. Jesus experienced the darkness. My God, why have you forsaken me? Why did He experience that? He took our brokenness 
all the way to its bitter ends so that we would not have to experience that. He became accursed so that we can become righteousness. And that is a profound reality. This is what Christmas is about. And of course, it's also what Easter is about. And it's what our everyday should be about. Is that incarnational understanding of, our, of the scripture is essential to, to the central tenet of the faith. That everything begins and ends with Jesus. You know, this is one of the reasons why I'm leery of movements today in the church that begin to put emphasis on things that they, they view as um, uh, like the church has forgotten. Like, a classic one, a big, a big issue uh, that was really popular. I remember um, uh, A.W. Tozer wrote a book on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, and he referred to the Holy Spirit as the forgotten one. And that the church needs to rediscover the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I've seen movements like this where all of a sudden the emphasis is all on the Holy Spirit. And I would say that the Holy Spirit has never been the forgotten one. <laughs> the Holy Spirit is by nature the shy one because his primary responsibility is to redirect people's attention to Jesus because there is no other name under heaven by which one can be saved. So I don't care if a church is rediscovering the doctrine of the Holy Spirit if it's, at, if, it's, if it's at the loss of the centrality of Jesus, then it's, then it's something that we should be leery of because we're told to test the spirits. And how do we know that it's the Spirit of God that is guiding us and leading us is that He will always redirect our attention to Jesus. So He's not forgotten. It is by His own design, His own, his own determination, His own role, His purpose, he is a missionary spirit, first and foremost, to point people to the truth of who Jesus is. Because Jesus says, nobody comes to me unless they are drawn. And the spirit has come into the world to point the world to Jesus. That's what the, the spirit does. And does the Holy Spirit do other? Of course, he's God. Uh, and that's the, the thing I think that is so, that is so tragic is that is that the church gets so, it gets so bored with the doctrines that actually never grow old because it is what our whole life should be built upon, which is God is like me in Jesus, but nothing like me in the sense that he is the new definition of what it means to be human. The virgin birth is an absolutely essential um, aspect of our theological understanding that this birth is unlike any other birth in human history because this is God's sovereign intervention into the brokenness of human history to say I am starting a new humanity right now this is why Lewis was right to say that the cross has no there's <laughs> there is no uh, nothing to compare it to it. It is completely stands alone as its own reality, its own universe, if you will. Its own, it, it creates its own language. It's the moment when time itself turned the corner and it will never be the same. This is the promise of Scripture that begins in Genesis and it finds its fulfillment in Revelation. And we are a part of this eternal story. God has become like us. And he's become like us 
in a way that we can look to Jesus to discover what, it, what God intends for us. Um, I always say that Jesus has to be God enough to save us, but he's got to be man enough that we can relate to him. And, and I don't want an empty theology that, that causes me to believe in a God who's distant and detached and doesn't care. Most people believe in some kind of God. The question is, is what name do we attach to that God? Maybe you're that person today and you're like, I, I'm, I'm curious I believe in something, I just don't know what. And I, and I would just simply say, you know, the, the, whole, the whole world of Portland's, you know, um, kind of pluralistic spirituality of, you know, the, how many coexist bumper stickers. Any person that has a coexist bumper sticker is essentially saying, there's a God, I don't think I've met them yet. Because, because this idea that a anyone that knows anything about the world religions that supposedly coexist that because what they're saying is not that we need to figure out how to live peacefully with our different views what they're actually saying is that all of these paths ultimately lead to the same place and that's that's not the case i always say that that we get frustrated or maybe um uh, embarrassed by the exclusivity of jesus's claims but i always say this I think of it as the key to the door to the house of life. Uh, if every key opens the door, the, the house is not safe. Uh, there is a, there's a reality that Jesus is, he, God has made himself known. He says, I am someone. And that someone is found in the face of Christ. And I want a God who is knowable. And I think that we have that. And there have been millions and millions who have died for that very belief. We're just not asked to really die for much of anything anymore. And so uh, maybe we don't understand the significance of what it truly means to have faith in him. Jesus is God like us. Um, but secondly, he is God for us. And this is equally significant that he became like us because he is a God who is for us. He, he, he chooses to not exist without us. God doesn't need us, but he is determined to not exist without us. That is a profound reality, is it not? I remember on May 23rd in 2011, um, I was sitting with a friend um, who actually up till about two months before this particular December 23rd, um, uh, he was not someone that particularly liked me. Uh, he was very leery of my Christianity. Um, I think he was, he was drawn to me and repulsed by my faith all at the same time because he was a beloved school teacher in Portland, very, very, very educated, very smart man who grew up uh, very devoutly Catholic, almost became a priest and then rejected his faith in college, became a public school teacher in Portland. And here we were sitting in his house three days before he died. And he was dying of cancer. Um, and he was, even three days before he died, he was determined to somehow escape this death sentence that he had received. He still couldn't accept that he was gonna die. And he'd cut off his wife and he'd cut off his girls. It's, he was so 
terrified of this looming death that he couldn't even handle the things he loved the most because it just reminded him of what he was about to lose and it scared him to death. I've never seen someone, it actually created, like I started to feel his fear, like, like being around him was one of those weird reminders where I'm like, we are all gonna die. Every one of us are gonna die. This is a real thing. Um, it was a very, it's very sobering reality. But here's the thing, he became obsessed with me at the end of his, at the end of his life, which is weird because he never really liked me very much. But he saw me as maybe the only person that could actually answer the questions that he was never willing to speak out loud when he was healthy, which is, is this all there is? I remember when I was a kid that I believed in God, but it never was very personal or real to me. It just seemed like a healthy way of living. But I need to know now, um, because if, I, if my, this as a backup plan, because I still think I'm gonna get out of this thing, but I just need to know. And I remember I met with him for two months and it was this particular day, the day before he stopped talking, uh, is that the thing that broke through was when we began to just put aside all of the millions of skeptics questions and really come down to the fundamental question is who do you say that Jesus is? And what do you see when, and I'd been reading him scripture of just like, is this, this is your idea of what Jesus is like and Christianity is like, but is this the Jesus that you hear when I read this passage to you? And I'd read him a passage from John 14. And the thing that he began to pick up on was just this inescapable theme that God seemed to love him. That God seemed to care about him, even in this situation. And then I remember talking with him specifically about the death of Jesus. That if God is willing to taste death for you, that tells us that death is not the final word. That death actually has the possibility of being the very means by which we are ushered into more life. And that day, he prayed to receive Jesus. And it was a really profound thing because I remember at the end, I said, uh, I, said I, I led him in a prayer and he goes, he goes, you know, I think I need to do that myself in my own words. And I said, go for it. And so he did. And then he looked up and he's kind of embarrassed. And I go, I go, I go that's, that's, um, that's amazing. And he goes, uh, he goes, was I praying or was I playing? And I said, I hope both. I hope that you discover in these last moments of your life that it's possible to even enter into a place of play in light of something so terrifying for all of us because it's an unknown reality. And I say none of this to diminish the tragedy or the ugliness of cancer or the the fact that two young girls lost their dad way before they should have. Um, I say this to say that it, it doesn't hold the last note because what he discovered in that, in that moment was that God was for him, not against him. And that Jesus has gone. He, what I love about Christianity is it doesn't downplay the tragedy of human existence. It doesn't downplay our suffering. It takes very seriously our brokenness it takes it all into account, and at the end of the day, it still is simply this statement. On your worst day, I love you. That's, 
that's what the gospel tells us. This is the Jesus that we have in Scripture. Isn't that what it says in Romans 5a? But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Notice, this is an act of God that has nothing to do with anything that you decided for yourself. It's something He decided. It speaks of something very powerful about God, that God is the only one who is truly free. And His freedom plays out in this way, that he is, His love is elective. He chooses in His freedom to love sinners and their sin. And that is His prerogative. He's also holy love. The good news is He's not content to leave us there. But He calls us to lift up our heads and to look to Him, the author and the finisher of our faith. Look what it says in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 34. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is, who is He who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore, it is also, is also risen who is even at the right hand of the Father, who also makes intercession for us. He lived for us. He entered into the human experience for us. He died for us. He rose and ascended to the right hand of the Father for us. And now He makes intercession even for us. Essentially, I always joke that it says that the Holy Spirit, we do not know how to pray as we ought to. And that the Spirit of God which is within us has to take our broken prayers our conversations that often are multifaceted. If you're anything like me, you're a rabbit trail person uh, and you get distracted in your prayers and the Spirit takes all of, our, all of the stuff that we try to say and then translates it and then Jesus double translates it. That's how, that's how far off we are and that God still pushes toward us. He cares about us. He, he even intercedes on our behalf. And what, a, what, a profound, what a profound truth in reality and it's humbling. God's loving kindness toward us. This is the fundamental relationship between God and humanity now because of Jesus. Is that it is a relationship of loving kindness. He is free. His grace is an electing grace. He chooses to love us in our brokenness. Um, and I, I think that when we, I like what Bart says, he says uh, that the fact that in Christ Jesus, God declares himself to be the God of God of humanity is in no way grounded in the nature of God or in some necessity laid upon him, but it is rather his own sovereign, creative, merciful decision and act. God has acted decisively in Christ to reveal to the world what kind of God he is. He's a God who loves you, which calls forth a need for a response because he isn't just like us he isn't simply for us but scripture declares that he's with us and this is the promise that i made to my friend who died I, you know i remember sitting with him um the next night when the um when the ambulance came and took him to hospice where he died a day later with his father by his side and his father said to me that um, when he looked at him, at first he seemed scared, and then peace just kind of came over him, and he passed. And I, I experienced the same thing with my dad in February. Um, uh, 
when's that two years ago now it'll be two years this february and i saw my dad fearful and then i saw a calmness come over him and my dad had this very primitive faith who who put his faith in jesus two years before he died uh, i don't think he ever cracked a bible open his his understanding of the gospel was based upon what myself and a chaplain had shared with him he never went to church growing up but he but he understood the gospel in fact i would argue that in some ways he seemed to understand it better than many christians do because he knew how he had lived and he knew how radical god's love must be if he was to save someone like my dad who could do nothing for for god he couldn't stop drinking he couldn't stop smoking he couldn't walk uh he couldn't stop asking nurses that were young enough to be his granddaughters out on dates. He did all of those things. And yet, um, he knew enough to know that Jesus is the only one that can save me. And I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure the scripture says we want to front load the gospel and back load it. <laughs> we're like, Jesus, it's a free gift, but you got to and then you just fill in the blank. Like, what is the list of things that you got to do when it says, whoever confesses with their lips that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead shall be saved? I don't know. I, I feel like that's a pretty decisive statement because once again, it puts the saving on the side of God and it puts the sinning and the needing on the side of man. <laughs> um, and... We think that that's, uh, that's just, just some simple thing, but the fact is, is you and I both know that the hardest thing we can ever do is to cry out mercy and say, I need help. <laughs> uh, we don't like to admit that we desperately need help, that we are fundamentally lost without Christ. This is why so many people get so weirded out when I confess crazy sins from the, from the stage. I mean, I haven't confessed I killed anyone yet, um, but you know, it's like, it's like, I have people like, you shouldn't say that you tried to kill a cyclist on the road, and you shouldn't say that you, you know, swear at people in your head, you know, and I'm like, what do you want? Do you want me to be something that I'm not, which is what we as Christians are so masterful at doing, which is pretending to present to the world an ideal that we ourselves can't keep, or do we want to say, no, I recognize what I am apart from Jesus, which is the whole reason I must cast myself in total dependence upon him every day. And radical confession is the key to being free from the lies that the enemy tells us that our brokenness can somehow separate us from the love of God. No, it, when I confess it, it has no power over me. And when we confess it as a community and function in grace, which is love without contingency, something radical happens in a community then the spirit has the freedom to truly point not only us together back again and again to jesus but it will use this community as a key to draw others into the community of jesus the god who became a human being for humanity is the revelation of what god intended humanity to be and is the god who says i will never leave you nor forsake you let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Matthew 28, the Great Commission, says, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, This is after his resurrection. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And how does he end it? And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. The greatest desire of the human heart is to be known and to know, to be loved and to love. I grew up as a kid who felt like the motto written over my life was nothing lasts. My mom's marriages didn't last. Dad's, stepdad's, plural, didn't last. Siblings didn't last. Stepbrothers and stepsisters came and went. Uh, my mom's ability to be at home because when she wasn't married to a bag of mixture stepdad, as I called stand-in dad, number one and two, uh, meant that mom's availability and presence and protection for me also doesn't last. And I was a kid who never felt safe, always seemed to be marked by a lack of any kind of borders or parameters that made me feel safe. And so I, I was haunted by endless nightmares and I was haunted by un, un, uncontrollable fear. Um, and you know, kids are cruel. They're like, they're like, a they're like horses. They can, they can smell they can smell fear, and so it's like I was the fearful kid. Well, inevitably, I'm going to be the kid that everyone picks on. Um, and and I just think of my life. You know, it's funny. I started writing this memoir that became a huge part of my book, and a lot of it was uh, was me, you know, trying to reconcile those realities. And I viewed everything through this kind of comic lens. It's like when I tell stories about my junior high years of, you know, the terror. I mean, I, I went to school, for those of you that are under 35, you have no memory of, because they would never do this to you now, of the time when, <laughs> when teachers could still give hacks with giant paddles or being forced to take showers uh, in junior high with open showers when you're the last kid in the state of Washington to go through puberty at your age. Um, <laughs> the cruelty of existence, you know, and I can laugh about those things now, but I, I remember the terror and the fear and that sense of aloneness. Um, and when I met Jesus at 27, it was like this strange sense that even though I couldn't still come to terms with what had happened to me when I was young, the things that I'd gone through, there was still this strange sense that even that in time would come to reveal a mystery of God's care and protection um, and even His willingness to utilize things that He Himself would never be responsible for, but His power because of His love to utilize all of those experiences to make me into a man after His own heart. And it allowed me then to look at my history through a new lens of not poor victim Josh. Um, we're all victims and we're all victimizers. And Jesus died for both and that's why it's really good news. And the gospel frees us from the, playing the victim and allows us to take seriously hard things in our lives and not make excuses for them. And at the same time creates a lightness of touch and a lightness of step because because Jesus has already defeated everything that scares us the most. 
death, sin, and the dominions of darkness, and the fear of being alone. He is with us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He is for you. And I promise you, whether you feel him or not, he is closer to you than you are to your own thoughts. And so the question is today is, do you know this Jesus? Because this is what we're celebrating. This is kind of a Christmas story. It is the Christmas story. And it's the ultimate gift. You know, the year that Santa let me down and I asked for a telescope, and I got a letter from the North Pole that said they were all out of telescopes that year. And then I was asked what else I wanted for Christmas other than a telescope, and I said I wanted a piano. And Santa's sick sense of humor gave me a keyboard made for Keebler elves. It was literally a keyboard this big. It was so small that even as an eight-year-old boy, I still could only play it with my pinkies. Um, which is why I've never become a very proficient piano player because Santa failed me deeply. When you compare Jesus to Santa, Santa is always paying attention to who's naughty and nice. Jesus says, you're all naughty and I love you still. I mean, the, the comparisons are wild. I think Christmas should be about him. Not Santa, Jesus. Though I like Santa, I'm a fan but I really like Jesus. And I promise you, he loves you. And you have been naughty and probably shouldn't receive any gifts. And yet he wants to give you the only gift that he can give, which is himself. So receive him. Amen.